Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod. It's Friday, June 19th. 2020. More importantly, it's Juneteenth, a day that Donald Trump apparently just learned about. As you may have guessed, this isn't Bill Press. This is Chris Liu filling in for a second week. Bill is taking a well-deserved vacation, and I'm honored to sit in for him. Protests for social justice continue around the country with another well-publicized shooting of a black man in Atlanta. The calls for police reform are growing, and the White House, Senate, and House are all putting forward proposals. In other news, the White House may not be talking about COVID-19, but the virus isn't going anywhere. And that's interfering with Donald Trump's transition to greatness, as well as his plans to restart his campaign. We got a curveball this week from the Supreme Court with the release of two opinions that surprised many of us. And finally, we have John Bolton's long-awaited book detailing more efforts by the president to enlist foreign governments to help his re-election. We have a great group of panelists for today's roundtable. Joining us are Jennifer Habercorn, who covers Congress for the Los Angeles Times. You can follow her on Twitter at Jen Hab. Welcome, Jen. Hi, Chris. Scott Wong is a senior reporter for The Hill. You can follow him at Scott Wong, D.C. Scott, welcome. Good morning. And and Elliot Williams is a CNN legal analyst and former deputy assistant attorney general in the Obama administration. You can follow him at Elliot C. Williams. Welcome, Elliot. Hi, Chris. How are you? And since we're shamelessly plugging, you can follow me at Chris Liu on Twitter. So let's dive into the issues. Let's start with the Supreme Court. On Monday, the court ruled six to three that federal anti-discrimination laws cover gay and transgender workers. The four liberals were joined by the Chief Justice, as well as Justice Gorsuch, who wrote the majority opinion. And on Thursday, the Supreme Court upheld the DACA program that has allowed 700,000 so-called dreamers to remain in this country. That decision was five to four with the chief justice writing the majority opinion. Elliot, we'll start with you. You're the legal analyst. Uh, Are these cases aberration or are we starting to see some independence from the court? No, I, I, you know, I wouldn't read too much into uh, what we can draw from each of the cases because how each of them played out is sort of indicative of what we've seen from the Roberts court. So just to unpack them really, really quickly, not to get too deeply into the legal weeds, uh, you know, what the, um, the LGBT case really came down to was a fight, for lack of a better term, between Gorsuch and the conservatives over how you read a statute and what it means to look at the original meaning of a statute, right? And the question is, you know, Alito found it truly inconceivable, and the folks in dissent in the case found it truly inconceivable that anyone in in the 1960s when um, civil rights laws were being written would have thought of um, LGBT rights as as even human, right? He just just inconceivable. None of this existed at the time, quote, unquote. Yeah, it's not a direct quote, right? Um, Gorsuch says the mere use of the word sex 
um, necessarily means that these uh, laws were intended to extend to, to LGBT rights. You know, it's this fight over what, so let's pull the camera back a little bit or the microphone back is the case word, right? And it's a fight over what it means to be a conservative. And this is what we saw, and this is getting to the DACA case too, in the president's reaction to it. It's what's the outcome that people want from the Supreme Court? Is it conservative jurisprudence or does the president just want to bend the court to his personal aims or his personal goals? And if you notice, the president's reaction was, this is a shotgun blast to the face of the American people. That regardless of the fact that really what one of these cases came down to was questions of what conservative jurisprudence is, really all the president wanted was a particular outcome. And I think, you know, you're going to continue to see the Supreme Court being a central issue, Um uh, certainly as we head through the election, but, um, you know, but for years to come. Jen, uh, you know, notwithstanding the president's reaction to yesterday's DACA opinion, you could almost sense kind of a sigh of relief or sense of acceptance from congressional Republicans, you know, on the LGBT uh, decision earlier this week. Uh, that was probably pretty much where the public is, uh, probably as well as with DACA and obviously trying to deal with immigration in a uh, election year would have been challenging. Is that your sense as well? Kind of like they're kind of glad that, that that Congress is glad not to have to deal with these issues. Exactly. Um, I mean, if if DACA had gone the other way, it definitely would have been something that congressional Republicans would have struggled with because you know there's several uh, Republicans who on the surface say um, that they don't want to send Dreamers back. Um, but uh, it, it would have been an extremely thorny issue to try to deal with in an election year. And they have no real guidance from the White House on, you know, coming up with some kind of deal. Um, and, you know, I have to add, I, I was expecting more Republicans to, frankly, be upset with the court for um, uh it, particularly John Roberts. We saw Tom Cotton said that the chief justice should go to Iowa and get himself elected if he's going to make such political decisions from the court. Um, but he was kind of an outlier. You know, we didn't see a huge backlash. And I think part of that is because they know that the court kind of saved them from a really difficult uh, situation, particularly with DACA. And Scott, let me turn to you. I mean, you know, while these two decisions surprise us, we have one more coming down the pike, which I think is going to have important implications. This is the efforts to get the president's financial records. And there's uh, importantly for the House of Representatives, which is trying to get that. This has implications for separation of powers. Um, you know, I know you're not necessarily a court watcher, but any sense about, you know, what the implications, depending on how that decision comes out? Well, you've seen Congress really struggle to hold the president accountable, uh, struggle with these checks and balances because the, the president and the executive branch have simply um, not turned over documents like tax records or, uh, you know, similar types of records. They've, they've just resisted and, uh, and House Democrats have been really at a disadvantage, especially when it comes to records and and subpoenas that are not being uh, responded to. And so I think with some of these these two cases uh, this week, you've seen, you have seen uh, the Supreme Court, you know, sort of flex its muscle and demonstrate some uh, independence. You know, all, all the last few years, we, we've heard, talked about how, how the court has shifted in a much more conservative direction with, uh, with the Trump appointees. And so, um, you know, I think, you, you know, I think Democrats are are pretty 
gleeful uh, at some of these decisions and, and I think hopeful for the future uh, as it relates to, you know, this uh, additional uh, ruling, which will be coming down the pipe. Hey, Chris, uh, a quick, just um, just to jump on Scott's point uh, about the rightward shift in the court. It is remarkable. And again, this, I'm not saying this with any judgment as to whether the court ought to be conservative or ought to be liberal. It's, it is a simple fact that the president has been remarkably successful at shifting not just the Supreme Court, but the federal judiciary pretty clearly to the right. I mean, he just, I believe he just confirmed his 200th federal judge in, in, in his term. And so, and I just want to reiterate how remarkable the president's reaction was um, that this was um, such a defiance of everything that we could have ever come to expect from the Supreme Court, that ultimately it seems that the president uh, has regarded the court and the courts as this thing to bend um, to his will rather than enforce the rule of law. And, you know, frankly, we've seen some of this with, you know, a- a- attacking federal judges, you know, um, attacking judges that have ruled against him, you know, attacking Judge Curiel years ago for being Mexican. And it's a long thread of that. Um, uh, and, and, you know, you know, my world too, you know, you see some of this with the president's relationship with the Justice Department. And so, again, it's just even in spite of a distinctly conservative judiciary, the president's reaction to one or two hot button social issue cases really says a lot about how the president just seems to regard the, the judiciary right now. And that's a good point, Elliot, because it is worth noting, and this was a little bit under the radar this week, that the Senate confirmed a 37-year-old to the D.C. Circuit, uh, which is the most important court of appeals uh, in the country, for a seat that doesn't even open up until the fall. And this 37-year-old, who is a protege of Mitch McConnell, you know, could likely serve on the court for the next 40 years. So uh, let's shift gears to another curveball this week, although this was a little bit expected, uh, the publication of John Bolton's book. Uh, in early excerpts, uh, the former national security advisor details how the president uh, asked the Chinese president Xi to help him with his reelection, how Trump tried to interfere with the investigations of foreign companies, and how apparently he doesn't even know that Finland is an independent country. Uh, we have a clip of uh, John Bolton talking to Martha Raddatz from ABC News. You described the president as erratic, foolish behaved irrationally, bizarrely. You can't leave him alone for a minute. He saw conspiracies behind rocks and was stunningly uninformed. He couldn't tell the difference between his personal interest and the country's interests. I don't think he's fit for office. I I don't think he has the competence to carry out the job. There really isn't any guiding principle uh, that I was able to discern other than uh, what's good for Donald Trump's reelection. Uh, Scott, amazingly, uh, John Bolton seems to have alienated everybody with his book. And you have Democrats now in the House uh, calling for him to testify. Uh, Do you think that will happen? And do you think there's value in that? I don't know if it will happen. Uh, Democrats are upset because John Bolton had a chance to testify during the Donald Trump uh, impeachment hearings and refused at that time. And, and, uh, And what we know now is that he had evidence that uh, Donald Trump, according to Bolton, Donald Trump was uh, soliciting help from a foreign leader, in this case, the Chinese leader, when the entire impeachment uh, case had been built around Donald Trump soliciting help from another foreign leader uh, in Ukraine. And so, you know, yeah, Bolton is facing fire from all sides at this point, Democrats 
and Republicans alike. And you can be sure that some of those comments that you just played, uh, Bolton calling Trump unfit for office, will be part of a Joe Biden campaign ad coming soon. Jen, what's been remarkable is that the uh, accounts of Bolton are similar to other things that, you know, uh, you and other people have been reporting on. And certainly this is not the mo- this is not the only unflattering book that has come out about the president. But he's managed to, you know, weather all of this. Do you think there's any lasting political impact to this? I don't think so. Um, and to Scott's point, I think if Bolton had had testified during the impeachment trial, that's where we could have seen some lasting effect because, you know, obviously the, the president's um, political life was on the line. And, you know, Bolton was viewed at the time as the only person whom Senate Republicans might believe because he had some credibility with them. Um, so I think if he was looking to have some lasting impact, he should have you know, testified six months ago. Um, obviously, that didn't happen. So the lasting impact is probably going to be to, um, you know, line Mr. Bolton's pockets. You know, Elliot, uh, the president is still trying to stop the publication of this book, which seems a little amusing since uh, we've already reading book reviews of it, and I think has now threatened criminal charges against Bolton. Uh, it's just, just more posturing on the president's part. It really is. Um, you know, again, I don't want to become the Trump whisperer, but the, the threat of legal challenge has been something that, you know, we've seen from the president before. So, you know, I, I don't know about that. No, the bigger picture about John Bolton, um, you know, because I think a lot of fire is being directed at him from Democrats on the Hill and, and you know, commentators and so on. And, you know, I don't even know if this is just about John, the problem here isn't about John Bolton. I see Bolton almost as this avatar for all these people who served under the president, knowing full well everything they knew about the president of the United States, but still decided uh, to, you know, take jobs under him. So, you know, and the list is long and, and growing of people who somehow decided uh, or became disillusioned with the president and then decided to leave their jobs. Secretary of Homeland Security, Kirsten Nielsen, or Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, although he was fired, but um, uh, sec- um, Chief of Staff John Kelly and on down. Um, the, you see, the, the tricky thing, and, and, and this is the same with John Bolton, everyone knew everything there was to know about Donald Trump in 1989. Maybe I can say that as someone who grew up in the New York area, but we knew who Donald Trump was back in 89. So even putting that aside, you knew who Donald Trump was in 2015 uh, and then again in 2017. And all we have are decades of data on how President Trump could have been expected to govern. So the notion that from his national security advisor, um, uh, that he that the president suddenly you know we learned that the president is unfit and doesn't know where Finland is should surprise no one. Um, and I guess we can fuss about um, the lack of character of John Bolton or whatever you know what John Bolton said you know what we can say but but at the end of the day you know lots of people serve the president knowing full well exactly who he was. Um, so I you know it's um, I don't think anybody's regarding him as a hero. Um, I think people. Are, are approaching the book with a great degree of skepticism and recognizing that he has a huge financial interest uh, in getting the book out. But let's not give everybody else who's serving under largely what I believe to be an unfit president um, and continuing to enable uh, his service um, at, at you know, the head of the executive branch. Yeah, that's a really important point. So thank you for flagging that. Uh, let's shift topics to police reform. Uh, 
Uh, protests continue around the country on the issue of racial injustice. This week, the president released an executive order. The House Judiciary Committee marked up its proposal. Uh, and next week, the Senate is scheduled to begin debate on a proposal from Senator Tim Scott. Uh, Jen, you wrote a really interesting piece about uh, Representative Karen Bass, who is leading the House efforts, and her work as an activist after the Rodney King uh, beating back in 1992. Uh, and her sense, as well as it seems like a lot of other people's sense, that now might be the moment for something to happen. Is that what you're hearing as well? Well, thank you for saying that, Chris. Um, yeah, that does, you know, I. it's always easy to bet against legislation, uh, actually making it into law on Capitol Hill. And, um, you know, that's what we've seen uh, if, if through the last year and a half that the Democratic House will pass legislation. Senate Republicans will either kill it or pass a, some kind of other bill that really doesn't uh, do what the House wanted, and nothing happens. Um, but this is a situation in which I do think there's a chance. I mean, the fact that House Speaker Pelosi said um, the other day that she wants to see Senate Democrats go to conference, meaning pass a bill in, in the Senate, pass a bill in the House so that it could be merged together at the end, that's a sign that they want a deal. Um, that doesn't really happen that often anymore, um, except on bills that really need to happen, like funding the government. Um, so that's a sign to me that um, everyone kind of wants to push this forward and get done what they can do, even if it's not 100% of what House Democrats want um, to start out with. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the conference. I, you know, somebody who spent a lot of time in the Hill, I can't remember the last time uh, Congress exactly. went to went to conference on something other than DOD authorization or an appropriations bill. Uh, Scott, I look it, the challenge is you know the devil is always in the detail, and I know you've written a lot about these competing uh, House and Senate proposals. Do you think there's room for a compromise here? I agree with Jen. I do think there's room for compromise. I think the the situation may be such that. Uh, there's, there is a space or common ground where Democrats and Republicans can come together. Number one, Democrats, I think, have the advantage here. Uh, you know, they, they uh, you know, were out of the gate quickly. They were responsive. Republicans have been sort of off balance on the issue, divided on a lot of these uh, <clears throat> police reform topics. Uh, they were a little slow out of the gate. And, and they're, they're, you know, they're, as, as they are on many issues, they're, they're divided. And so I think, and, and the pressure seems to be more on President Trump uh, and, and the Republicans to get something done. So they're facing an uphill battle. Uh, and, and that situation may be right for, for something to get done. Um, you know, Schumer has the tough decision right now, all in his court, do Democrats block the Tim Scott Republican bill outright and say it's insufficient and carry this issue into election day? And let voters decide, or does you know Schumer allow Democrats to to vote to move the bill, uh, you know, to the floor, and and do they try to amend it that way and and see something pass, and then you end up in in a conference committee. So, um, you know, I'm sure Schumer is consulting with Nancy Pelosi. She's going to have a big say in this as well, uh, and I'm sure he's consulting with Karen Bass, the leader of the CBC. Uh, who's been instrumental and really the face of, of this legislative effort. Uh, Elliot, let me pick up on Scott's point because and, and ask you about the politics of this, because it's a remarkable 
high stakes game that I think both sides are playing, you know, five and a half months from uh, five months from Election Day to actually engage in this kind of legislative battle, both to try to get something done. But I think as much as importantly, to posture for Election Day, you know, for the Democrats, they also face a challenge from their left as well, which certainly wants to go uh, much more uh, be much more forward leaning than whatever is going to come out of Congress. Where do you think Democrats end up on this? Better to get something done, or better to have this as an election year issue? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I actually think the Democrats do probably have better leverage here, um, and uh, just given the huge incentive around the country for getting something done. You know, you don't. You know, I look. Look, I work for Chuck Schumer, as you know, Chris. Uh, um, you know, is, is singularly mindful of the politics of this, uh, and that you know, I think the tougher votes, you know, the, the tougher vote, I think, is for Republicans to say no to police reform than to you know than the Democrats, um, you know, having to take a vote that sort of pushes them too far to the left or that divides their caucus or whatever. I just think there are thorny questions about, given how comprehensive the national conversation is on policing right now, um, I just think it's a bit of a, it's a bit more of a minefield for Republicans. And so I do think it's likely that we get something, um, uh, you know, um, you know, o- over the coming weeks. Um, now, will it be, completely satisfactory. This is, you know, as Scott and Jenna both said, you know, will be completely satisfactory to what um, sort of the more activist um, uh, elements of the Democratic Party are, you know, probably not. But, you know, I just think, given the national moment, um, and, and, and frankly, you know, and we'll just, just to pause and, and again, uh, take a step back, you know, the, the most significant point about the national moment here um, almost flows from the triumph of the cell phone video, right? And this is something we haven't really talked about that much, um, which is that because the nation has now seen incredibly compelling images of police brutality, many people for the first time, like, you know, black people, like I'm a black person, like, you know, we've known this for a very long time, but somehow a few compelling images suddenly created a national dialogue and a national conversation. Um, and to some extent, that movement in the country uh, is what makes things tough for Republicans. And I think, you know, the implicit questions about, you know, we all watched that George Floyd video. Um, are you willing Mitch McConnell and others to cast votes that sort of put you at odds with reform based on something that everybody's getting on board with. I just think that that's probably going to be tough for Republicans. You know, this is not only that historic moment, but it's also a fascinating time for those of us that love politics to see this playing out uh, in real time, because we don't often have these kinds of debates uh, this close to a presidential election. So let's take a brief break. This is the Bill Press Pod, and I'm Chris Liu sitting in for Bill. Today's roundtable is brought to you by the Ironworkers Union. Take a look at some of America's most iconic structures, the Golden Gate Bridge, the St. Louis Arch, the Sears Tower. They were all built by men and women of the Ironworkers Union. Under the leadership of President Eric Dean, the Ironworkers are building America's major construction projects today and ready to build America's infrastructure tomorrow. We thank the Ironworkers for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Check out their website, ironworkers.org for more information on their good work. 
The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. This is Chris Liu guest hosting for Bill. And I'm here with Jen Habercorn, Scott Wong, and Elliot Williams. So let's shift to our last, to- our last topic, COVID-19. We're seeing record cases and hospitalizations rising in states like Texas, Arizona, North Carolina, and even Oklahoma, where the president is going to hold his rally. And after initially planning to restart the rallies on Juneteenth today, uh, he shifted it one day. But there remain significant health concerns about a large, crowded indoor rally. Uh, attendees will have to sign a waiver, but they won't have to wear a mask. Uh, that doesn't sit well with the boss. We have a clip from Bruce Springsteen. To the man sitting behind the resolute desk, with all respect, sir, show some consideration and care for your countrymen and your country. Put on a fucking mask. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, Scott, and this mask debate is now playing out in the House with the Speaker requiring masks to be worn at committee hearings, and I think giving uh, committee chairman the prerogative to remove members who don't wear their masks. How well do you think that's going to play out? Yeah, I mean, the masks have have been sort of at the center of these cultural wars, and and particularly on Capitol Hill. You see a lot of Republicans walking around the Capitol during the limited days that they're in session now, and, and they're not wearing masks. And, uh, you know, reporters all around them are, are all abiding by the rules and wearing masks, but many Republicans are not. Democrats uh, almost 
all are wearing masks. And, and we're seeing this play out in some of these committee hearings this week on transportation, in the Judiciary uh, Committee uh, markup we saw this week. And we didn't see anyone get thrown out of, of uh, the committee. Uh, even Jim Jordan, I think, at times could be spotted wearing a mask. But uh, it really has become a symbol uh, for President Trump and for Republicans of, of defiance. And, you know, they're claiming that uh, a mask is a violation of their liberty and freedom, which which is doubtful. Um, but uh, and now it's going to shift to this arena in, in Tulsa. And uh, this is an indoor space. And, and as you mentioned, uh, cases are on the rise in many, many states where they've relaxed. Uh, you know, they relax restrictions. Florida, where we've seen, you know, thousands of people at the beach and at nightclubs and bars. Uh, California, uh, which is seeing a resurgence in, in cases. And I think it just goes to show that with this coronavirus, just because you sort of, you know, think that you get over the hump, it, it can always, uh, it can always come back. And, uh, you know, we're seeing that play out in states around the country, as well as is places like China, which just, shut down all, all of its schools in Beijing after people had uh, sort of applauded its, its tough stance on, on cracking down on, on the virus. So it, it really is, is something to watch. Uh, Jen, let me turn to you. We, on Capitol Hill, we not only have a standoff on masks. We seem to have a little bit of a standoff on providing additional economic relief. Uh, this week, we got some uh, encouraging data about retail sales. Uh, but then again, yesterday, we got more data that shows that about another million and a half people filed for unemployment. Uh, do you think that Congress, again, as we speak about compromises, will find some kind of compromise on providing additional relief in July, perhaps? You know, frankly, I think it's going to be harder to find that compromise on some kind of additional COVID response than police reform. Um, Republicans have, you know, for several weeks now have said that they are not going to deal with this issue until July. They wanted to see some of the reaction um, from the last stimulus measures and and see how the economy was doing. Um, But I think, you know, once Assuming they reopen this issue in July, which I do think they will, um, I think you're going to see, um, you know, just the disparity over mask jump to a disparity over how to further respond. Um, and, you know, Democrats want to continue to do ambitious big bills and Republicans just don't. They're very fatigued by the spending. Um, they, they feel like the economy needs to reopen a little more naturally and, um, you know, basically push people out into the world. And um, I have a hard time seeing what they will actually do until the temperature changes, until if and when um, both sides come to that point where they they want to get something done versus everything they want to do. You know, Elliot, we seem to have reached this kind of funny point in this country right now where, you know, all states, both red and blue, are now moving towards reopening. And we seem to have just accepted the fact that, you know what, 800 to 1,000 people are just going to die every day for the next several months, and we're just going to have to live with that. Um, what are the, like, broader implications of that kind of thinking? Yeah, I mean, remember when... Um... Uh, when we hit the 9-11 point, like, you know, when America hit like three or 4,000 people had died, and that was a big milestone. That many, you know, more than that or something like close to that are dying in a week now. Uh, and we've just lost sense, I think, as a nation of the scope and scale of all of this. Now, you know, it's interesting. There's a lot 
of, you know, and I think, frankly, the networks are guilty of by having political commentators on talking about what is distinctly a public health crisis, fueling this idea that there's politics behind what got us here. Was it, you know, our masks themselves a sign of something? Is the president responsible? You know, and you know, what I would actually say is if, if you take it out of politics, far bigger than Donald Trump, far bigger than Andrew Cuomo or any governor is sort of the American focus on individuality and the American focus on you, the government, not being the boss of me, being the thing that is compounded where we are more than anything else. Because think about it. Around the world, most other places have a relationship with government that says, hey, you know, when the government tells me to stay home for a couple of days, or when the government, like if you tell Germans, as you saw, or, um, you know, the government's telling me to put on a mask for a little while, people will do that for the most part and, and not really go out and protest at state capitals about it. Here in the United States, you know, people will literally take up arms to protest, um, and this is you know across right and left, the idea that the government can tell you to do something. That more than anything else, that sense of individuality and liberty that we pride as a nation actually is somewhat incompatible with a global pandemic that requires direction from the government uh, about people staying home and so on. But we are really, you know, to, to get back to your question, you know, Chris, we're really in a place where we are losing sight of what you know, um, you know, 50,000 people died in Vietnam, we're going to quadruple that. Um, and here we are opening rallies and opening the country again, when the nation just is not ready for it. It is remarkable. I'm sure you all saw there was a, a kind of a side by side chart of looking at uh, the number of deaths, uh, the curve of deaths in the United States compared to the European Union, which is sort of of comparable, comparable size. Actually, the EU is slightly bigger. And you can sort of see the EU graph kind of go up and go down. And we're kind of plateauing at this 800 to 1,000 deaths a day. Uh, and it stubbornly does not go down. Well, let's uh, shift to uh, the final segment. Uh, every week, we ask our panelists to come with a story that caught their eye. It could be something serious, funny, or just offbeat. Uh, let me start with you, Jen. What caught your eye this week? So I uh, am flagging a story that my colleagues at the Los Angeles Times wrote. The headline is, Police Take a Knee. Mayor paints a mural, but activists still see waffling. Um, it was written by Elliot Waylu and Chris Majerian. And it just kind of looks at the, um, you know, there there have been a lot of moments in this um, Black Lives matter protests. Um, uh, you've seen police officers take a knee, which has been cheered by the peaceful protesters. Um, and we saw DC Mayor Bowser painted the large Black Lives Matter mural on 16th Street. Um, but it's really looking at the frustration that some activists see that not much has actually changed, you know, when we're talking about legislation or even local reforms. Um, so it's kind of examining all of that. And I thought it was a great story. That is a great story. I definitely saw that one. Uh, Scott, what was uh, on your mind this week? Well, I'm going to plug my own story out this morning on The Hill, <laughs> uh, thehill.com. Um, you know, Val Demings, the Florida Democratic Congresswoman, has seen her stock rise in the Joe Biden beep stakes uh, competition in recent weeks. And uh, she she's just a very talented pop, uh, politician, a tremendous orator, connects with people, has an amazing personal story growing up in the segregated South and rising to 
Orlando police chief and then in, into Congress. But uh, our story today looks at some of the backlash that she's facing in this, uh, you know, police reform moment as a former Orlando police chief. Uh, Black Lives Matters activists are really uh, highlighting some of the police brutality incidents that happened under her watch. And I talked to Hank News, uh, I'm sorry, Hawk Newsom. His name, he has a great name, Hawk Newsom <laughs> of New York, Greater New York chapter of Black Lives Matter. He and his sister, uh, Shavana Newsom, who is a congressional candidate up there in New York uh, facing election on Tuesday, uh, they are just very critical of Val Demings. And I was on the phone with Hawk yesterday and he, he screamed across the room to his sister, you know, could you ever support anyone for VP in a police uniform? And she, and she screamed back to him, hell no. And I, I threw that in the story. Um, but take a look, uh, you know, a lot of very interesting voices and commentary on uh, this moment and Val Deming's place in this moment. You know, it, it does highlight kind of the, the value of uh, of Joe Biden waiting to make this announcement. And as people probably saw, uh, Amy Klobuchar took herself out of running uh, <laughs> last evening. Uh, Elliot, what's on your radar this week? Yeah, and uh, like Scott, I will uh, shamelessly self-promote my own work. Um, but no, it's uh, it's on Aunt Jemima, believe it or not. And so last night I wrote, or uh, just you know, the evening of the 18th, uh, I wrote a piece of you know for CNN.com about Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben, and you know what what this issue of um, racist or not racist logos means and says. Or, or avatars means and says about us as a country. Now, big picture, when um, you know CNN tweeted out my article, uh, and it's amazing how overwhelmingly negative the reactions have been uh, from people who are number one saying it's trivial for me to make an issue out of Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben. Uh, number two, you know, there's a big anecdote in my story about Crayola crayons, and when I was a kid. Uh, as many as as you all might remember too, there was a flesh-colored crayon, and the flesh color was for white people, white, or Caucasian, light, pink, flesh. And my point in all of this is, what we produce as a nation is incredibly reflective of what our values are and who we are as a country. But you know, the point of my piece is literally the most recognizable trademark in the United States, if not the most, one of the three or four most. It's been trademarked. The Aunt Jemima logo has been trademarked since, you know, the early 1900s or whatever. Um, it's a slave image. It is literally a slave mammy image. Um, same thing, Uncle Ben got his name in part because Black men were called boy and uncle to not extend them the dignity of getting the name Mister, and so they've updated uh, Aunt Jemima and give her another Claire Huxtable blowout and a pair of pe pearl earrings, and they put Uncle Ben um, in business casual clothing. But they're still slave images, um, right? They're still very painful images and a dark reminder of our past. Yet somehow, and I want to ask, you know, I don't fight with people on the internet, but I want to ask and respond to some of these tweets, like. What are you defending? Like, are you so wedded to the idea of a slave appearing on your bottle of pancake syrup that you're willing to go to the mat with a stranger about it? Um, 
And I think most people, you know, just refuse to see it. Many people refuse to see it in those terms that you're actually defending something quite noxious. Um, uh, so anyway, um, take a look at the piece. Um, but but again, I, the first line of the article is sometimes a smiling mammy on your bottle of pancake syrup isn't a smiling mammy on a bottle of pancake syrup. It's something much, much more bigger than that. And I will, uh, on that note, I will flag, I, I'm sure you all saw this, that uh, Johnson & Johnson, which is the manufacturer of Band-Aids this week, finally said they'll be making uh, Band-Aids in, in black and brown colors, which is not something I had even thought about, but it seems, you know, very much overdue. Well, look, that wraps up this week's roundtable. I'd like to thank my guests, Jennifer Habercorn, Scott Wong, and Elliot Williams. This is Chris Lou sitting in for Bill. You can follow me on Twitter at chrislu 44 Have a good and safe weekend. Why? Why? If you have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 